Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue working our way through God's Word. Now, in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to be continuing a message that he began last week entitled, Reset Our Worship. It's taken from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. But before we get to that, I want to invite you to come and worship with us at Calvary Baptist Church in Fayetteville. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you still have other questions, be sure to reach out on social media or call us at 479-442-4634. You can also email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Well, let's listen to Pastor Kirk as he shares with us from Hebrews chapter 12. Well, we actually began this message last week, intended for it to be one message. It has stretched into two. And uh, so I want to take just a few minutes uh, to go back to where we were last week and catch up. But first of all, remember that our theme for the month of January, this beginning of a new year, is Reset. Uh, This new year gives us an opportunity to uh, begin anew. I know that it's traditional for people, uh, non-Christians and Christians alike, to make resolutions that really don't usually last very long, you know, to eat more healthy and to exercise more and to do all these things that um, we know we should do and we would like to do, which we've resolved many times to do oftentimes not getting much beyond uh, the month of January. Well, I'm focusing on uh, three or four things uh, that I hope that you'll make a reset, a reset the priority of some things in your life. Some of you uh, already are very faithful to these things. The beginning of a new year doesn't mean you have to start something that you're not familiar with. Uh, For others of us, perhaps they are things that we have neglected a little bit or need a deeper, newer, fresher commitment to, Um, but they are things I think that are very important to our Christian life. The first Sunday of this month, we talked about resetting our commitment uh, to the Word of God, and we're emphasizing everyone, uh, have a reading plan. Uh, read your Bible some every day. Let's be people of the Word. Let's grow in the Word this year. If God allows us to live to see 2024, then when we get to 2024, may our lives be different. May they be more committed to Christ, more knowledgeable of the Word. Uh, may they be uh, stronger and deeper uh, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then last week, We talked about resetting the priority of worship in our lives. And we came to this text in Hebrews chapter 12 because it is a, uh, well, it's a very interesting passage because it it contrasts worship under the old covenant, under the uh, covenant of works under Moses, and the covenant of grace that has been ushered in by the life and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it compares these two uh, worships to two mountains. First of all, Mount Sinai, 
where Moses received uh, the law from God that established who they were as the people of God in the Old Testament. And it says this about Mount Sinai worship, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. In other words, those people of Israel surrounding the foot of Mount Sinai, while Moses was up on the mount hearing from God directly, this was a frightening experience. It was a frightening thing for Moses. It says that this mountain could be touched. It was a literal place. It was a physical place. But it says also that, that this mountain caused, uh, caused great fear and caused uh, trembling in the heart of Moses and others. It was terrifying. It was, it was uh, uh, experienced in a great tempest or a great whirlwind. There was the very threat of life and death of any animal or person touching that mountain except for Moses himself. God was very literally present in that place, giving uh, guidance and instructions to his people. But then when you get to verse 22, it changes. He said uh, in verse 18, you have not come to that mountain. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, that's verse 22, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and thank God for it, shall we? Thank God for his word. The city of the living God. This is where we come as uh, people living under a covenant of grace. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. It is noted by, it is marked by, innumerable angels in joyful, festal gathering. It is a place of celebration. The assembly of all God's people is there, Old Testament and New Testament alike. It is the place where uh, the enrolled in heaven gather. And I asked you last week, and I'll ask you again today, is your name enrolled in heaven? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? If so, this scene that the writer to the Hebrews is describing is a scene that you are included in. For us who are here, it is yet future. But in a way that only God could explain, <clears throat> excuse me, and in a way that only through spiritual eyes we can know, it is not just future. It is present as well. Jesus is there, the one who mediated or made possible the new covenant through his blood and his sacrifice. So we're seeing 
uh, this Old Testament worship and our New Testament worship. And kind of in conclusion to those thoughts, if you go down to verse 28 and 29, the end of the chapter, the writer says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Acceptable awe or reverence. If we are challenged to offer to God acceptable worship, then we have to recognize that it's possible that we may be guilty of offering to God what is unacceptable, right? Isn't that a natural conclusion? I believe that there's a lot of unacceptable worship going on in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. I believe all over the world there are many things being done in the name of Jesus, in the name of the living God, that is unacceptable worship. Well, if that's so, what does acceptable worship look like? Now, I have just two points to this message, and I shared the first one last week. Uh, let me take just a moment to review that, then we'll go to the second point for today. There are two aspects of worship. First of all, there is what we might call all-of-life worship. All-of-life worship. This is personal. It is something that you have to make a decision about. It is something that every believer has to decide. Am I going to live an all-of-life form of devotion to Christ? Am I going to, to worship God with my life, with my breath, with my words, with my works every single day? This is life, this is worship that is not turned on and turned off at convenient times. It is recognizing 24-7 who God is and what he means to my life and what he means to my family. It is all of life worship. It's recognizing that first and foremost, worship is a whole life lived to the honor and to the glory of God. It is what Paul had in mind when he gave us 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, in your work, in your play, in your school, in your hobbies, in your interaction with your friends and your acquaintances, in your family life, in your private life, in your life as far as life choices, what you read, what you watch, how you live every single day. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all, all to the glory of God. It gives to us a great um, test 
for our life and our choices. We can ask ourselves, can I do this thing? Can I watch this program? Can I hear uh, this uh, music? Can I read this book? Can I have these friends? Can I go where they go and do what they do and do it to the honor and glory of God? And if the answer is no, it's a very good indicator that maybe that is a behavior that you need to cut out of your life. In some cases, it may even be a person or persons you need to cut out of your life. Okay, If you can't be that person and do it for the honor and glory of God, you should not do it. This is all of life worship. It affects our attention. It affects our uh, affections. It impacts our allegiances. That my attention is focused on Him. My affections are lived honoring, serving, and respecting Him. And my allegiance is abandoning any other loyalty that takes my loyalty or, or hinders my loyalty and my worship to God. That is all of life worship. We gave you the example. I'll not repeat the story for the sake of time. But in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, a man by the name of Ornan the Jebusite. This Ornan the Jebusite, when King David was told by the Lord to go to the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and there offer sacrifices to the Lord in order to stop the plague, the death angel who had already killed 70,000 people of the Israelite nation. David went there, requested to buy that threshing floor. Ornan said, I'll not sell it to you. I give it all. I give you this place to, to build your altar. I give you these beasts, these oxen to offer as a sacrifice. I give you these wooden implements and tools to start and to build the fire with. I give you these sacks of grain as a grain offering to the Lord. I give it all. That's what it means to live an all of life type worship. All right? I hope and pray that's true about you and I desire it to be true about me. The second aspect, our second kind of worship is what we might call life together worship. Life together worship. All of life worship is a personal thing. Not private always, but personal. Okay? But life together worship is corporate worship. It's what we usually think of when we think about the subject of worship. It is this gathered time on Sunday morning at 1030 and that everything else, whether it's Sunday school or Bible studies, all of that is a prelude to this time focused on worshiping God together. The New Testament speaks of corporate, uh, these corporate gatherings as a specific expression of all of life worship. Now, I want to give you a key truth, and it's got two parts to it, and this is something I need you to focus on and concentrate on. Don't let it just go by because you need to understand it. And the truth is this. A person 
may regularly attend a corporate life together worship gathering without living an all of life worship lifestyle. Does that make sense? In other words, you can come here to worship God with, with this congregation. You may be faithful. You may be here every single Sunday. may never miss a service and still have a heart that is so far from God that it's reprehensible. You can go through the motions. You can even be on a praise team. You can give of your tithes and offerings. You can even mouth the words of songs. But your heart still be far from God. Understand, that's what the Pharisees were guilty of in Jesus' day. When it came to public corporate worship, they crossed all the T's, they dotted all the I's, they lived by the letter of the law, not just that Old Testament Mount Sinai law that God gave, but they had added so much to it. Do you realize they had over 633 points to the law that they tried to obey every single day? Much of it man-made. Now you can go through the motions of corporate worship and not be living an all-of-life worship lifestyle. Now, let me give you the second part to that key truth. On the other hand, however, a person cannot live an all-of-life worship lifestyle and then neglect the corporate life-together worship gathering. You cannot be a fully devoted follower of Christ. You cannot be an all-of-life worshiper, loving God, giving it all to God, and then just neglect the corporate gathering of God's people. Now, let me qualify this. For those of you that are sitting at home watching this service, and we have some very faithful uh, members of our congregation that physically are unable to be here. There is a qualifier of this that that doesn't mean those of you that are providentially hindered. When it's physically impossible to be in God's house, I believe God understands that, and I believe God knows that. And you can be an all-of-life worshiper. But understand, if you can pick up and go to Walmart on Monday, you ought to be in church on Sunday. Providentially hindered is not your definition of when I just don't feel like it. Providentially hindered is when, in reality, you can't do other things by going out. It's not a matter of picking and choosing what you can and cannot, what you will or won't do. If you are an all-of-life worshiper and you don't have those serious, uh, physical, perhaps even emotional situations 
that keep you away from the house of God and the people of God, then you need to be in church, corporate worship. This, this right here, is meant to be a highlight and a reflection of what's going on in your life every single day. It needs to be the overflow. Now, how did worship change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant? I want to give you, uh, and just we'll do this very quickly, I want to give you five specific characteristics of what life together worship is supposed to look like. Now, we're going to talk more about worship in the month of February and March as we march towards Resurrection Sunday, okay? So we're going to dive really deep into worship, what it means, uh, how we do it, and I believe we'll go some places maybe you've never been before in your understanding of worship. But I want to give you this kind of as a foundation for that, okay? Five characteristics of corporate worship. Number one, Jesus Christ is the center of New Testament worship. Or you may just want to say it is Jesus-centered. Old Testament worship, what many did not realize was all those sacrificial uh, things they did, all the, sacri- all the blood of bulls and goats. And I know that some of you in the next month or so, you've committed yourself to reading through the Bible this year. And if you're reading through it chronologically, or you're reading through it as it is given to you from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to get over there in the book of Leviticus, and it's going to take the power of the Lord to help you get through that. As my dear friend Amy Parton is wont to say, I'm having a hard time finding God in the book of Ezekiel. And I had to remind her, he's all over the place. But what we're doing, what we're doing in these these books that talk about the intricate details of the sacrifices that that really don't pertain to us directly, that was Mount Sinai worship, Understand, Christ is in the thick of all of that. It is all about him, though they could not see it. And though even with hindsight, oftentimes we have trouble seeing it. But all of the blood that was shed uh, of the animals and of all the ritual and of all the stuff you might even want to call rigmarole, though it's not, understand it wearies us. It bores us. Sometimes it repulses us. It was all pointing towards Jesus. But in New Testament, New Covenant worship, we see that. We know that. It is all about Jesus. And it's not about the blood of bulls and goats anymore. It is now about the blood that was shed for us. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He is the one who purchased salvation for us and blessing for us. He is the new temple that we go to. There is no longer a temple we have to make pilgrimages to where some of it you're allowed to go into it and some of it is off limits and all of that business. He is the temple. You are perpetually in his presence. And how much even more glorious it is 
when we come together and recognize that together and we lift up praises to his name and we lift up uh, worship to his name because we are there in the presence of the new temple that is Jesus himself. Remember that as John saw the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, And he sees this place, the eternal home for God's people. And he saw that innumerable host of angels. And he sees this church of the firstborn, you and me, those from the Old Testament, those from the New, in the presence of God. You remember, he saw no temple there. Why? Because Christ is the temple thereof. And there was no need of the sun or moon, for Jesus was the light of that place. All right. So true worship in this New Testament sense is Jesus-focused. It's all about Him. Guess what? Our services are not prepared. They are not, uh, the intention of them is not to please you. It's not to make you happy. It's not to make you feel good. I'm thankful when the Spirit of God works in your heart and you leave rejoicing. But understand what we do here is to focus on Him. Jesus focus. Number two, true worship is gospel-centered. It is not only Jesus-focused, it is gospel-centered. The gospel The life, the death, the resurrection is what makes worship possible. Without the death of Christ and his resurrection, there would be no purpose for us being here. We are not Jewish people. We are not here to try to relive Mount Sinai Old Testament worship. We are here because of Jesus and because of the good news of what is provided through him. The gospel is what we proclaim in worship. The gospel is what we sing in worship. The gospel is what calls us a people, uh, calls us together as a people in worship. It is all around and surrounded by the gospel. It arouses people to praise and worship. It sends people out with a message to share to the world. Some churches ignore the gospel. Some so-called churches that you could go into right here in Fayetteville, Arkansas today, Jesus is very likely not even mentioned. And even if he is, the true gospel is not even breathed. But without the gospel, we don't have anything. It's not to dance around in the best churches Sunday by Sunday, regardless of what the message is focused on. It may be focused on how to have a better marriage and family life, but somewhere in that, the cross is going to be sung about, it's going to be talked about, Somewhere in that, we are going to glory in our Redeemer, whatever, whatever the topic is. As one pastor said it, read your text, pastor. Read your text, preacher. Then make a beeline for the cross. And that means that the gospel is going to be front and center in all that we do. That's why there is a cross leaning against the wall behind us for you to look at. 
every single Sunday. That's why there's a Bible opened to Isaiah chapter 53, the prophecy of a suffering Messiah before you on a communion table every Sunday. That's why on the very front of this podium, I need to be sure, yeah, there's a cross right there too, all right? As preachers say, I'm hiding behind that. I'm not sure what all that means when we talk about hiding me behind the cross, but that's a good saying, and I think that's why it's on the front of this pulpit. Jesus-focused, gospel-centered. Number three, Mount Mount Zion worship, New Covenant worship. Because of Jesus, there is removed the need for a ritualistic approach to God. It's not about ritual. Oh, we have traditions. And there are things that that are symbolic of other things. Did you know that there's, there's more symbolism of the gospel in the order of worship than probably what you've ever known before? Did you know that the very order of the type of songs that are sung, prayers that are prayed, That is a pattern of worship. We don't see this so much today. We have steeples and that kind of thing. Um, Not many church buildings are built with with a high upward focused um, roof line anymore because it's expensive to build these kinds of buildings. And oftentimes today, churches look more like civic auditoriums or they may be rented buildings, school cafeterias, cafetoriums, that kind of thing. But did you know that back several hundred years ago, even the shape, the footprint of the church building had a gospel focus to it. Did you know that? If you could, if you could go up in a hot air balloon or, or somehow fly over a cathedral, you'll find that it was cruciform in its shape. That means it was built in the shape of the layout of a cross. We have traditions. Symbolism is important. Now, I realize some of you don't like it, and that's okay, because we were all in our generation brought up on it, and I don't want to get sidetracked here with something that's going to make somebody mad. But it's why we've removed flags from our worship center. We're not here to worship a country. We're not here to worship, even in symbol, a Christian flag. Especially when that Christian flag has been worn in some very awful places and done, it has done. Uh, or been along to represent those who did some very reprehensible, evil things. Everything here should draw attention to Christ. Now, I'm not positive what this dove shooting down three death rays is all about (laughs) up here in the stained glass. I love our stained glass. I'm just old-fashioned enough. I'm not so modern or or hip or up-to-date that all that looks bad or old-fashioned to me. I love it. It's beautiful. I I guess that's the Trinity, maybe. That's all that I can figure. But I've always been a little bit mystified by that since the first time I ever walked into this church building. There's symbolism. And those things are valuable. But 
we need to watch out for ritual. And that's a different thing altogether. Now understand, Mount Sinai worship in the Old Testament was full of ritual, was it not? All the steps that the priest had to go through and the way certain things had to be done. And, and when someone stepped in with, with a, a pragmatic move, something that, well, it makes sense and, and surely it won't make any difference, such as the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Do you remember what they did? When it came time, remember that the fire on the altar of the, uh, of the um, a tabernacle in the wilderness, remember that it was the precursor to the more permanent temple that uh, there was a fire that had been lit by God. God had endorsed what they did and, and sent down fire. And that fire was a holy fire. God had given it, symbolizing his presence and his approval. But do you remember Nadab and Abihu when it came time to sacrifice? They took a, a censer, that is a, a stick with a fire pan on the end of it, and they scooped up some campfire coals outside the tabernacle grounds. And they carried that in to use that fire for their worship. And do you remember that fire came down and burned them to the crisp? And God told Moses and Aaron, Aaron their father, don't you weep for them. Now there was ritual that had to be obeyed. They had to cross the T's and dot the I's just right. But understand Understand, we don't have to worship under that kind of burden today. And I thank God for that, don't you? I'm thankful that, that we can laugh, mostly that we can laugh at ourselves. Because I laugh at you all the time. I just want you to know that. I'm thankful that, that, we, can, um, that we can come to God as we are, as far as our dress, as far as um, just our approach to God. What counts where it's non-negotiable is in the status of your heart. What about the status of your heart? Are you coming in arrogantly or proudly? Are you coming in carrying your feelings on your shirt sleeve, just looking for the preacher to say something you don't like so that you can be justified in leaving and not coming back? Some people go to church that way. Did you know that? Or do you come in with your feelings on edge and just daring anybody, anybody to cross you or not acknowledge you? That's not the way we approach God. It's not the way we approach each other. But certainly our hearts have to be right, but it's not ritual. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 make it very clear that Jesus, that all of this heavily symbolized strictly regulated approach to worship in the Old Testament, that Jesus not only fulfilled it, he abolished it. He crushed it. He completely did away with that. Through Christ, we are already in his presence. We don't have to march through some, some specific steps in order to encounter God in corporate worship. He is already here. He came in with us when we came in the door. Number four, this is why it's important that you not neglect corporate worship. One of the reasons. Corporate worship also focuses on building up 
the body of Christ. Now, in the old Mount Sinai, old covenant, Old Testament worship, none of that was directed towards me being an encouragement to you or you be an encouragement to that person over there. It was all focused this way. But understand that corporate worship now, this, this life together worship of God's New Testament people is focused on Him, but it's focused towards one another as well. And it's not about what will you do for me, but it's about how can I be Christ to you. And we see this specifically in what you hear me refer to in Pastor Dan and you hear and see all the time around here, the one another's of the New Testament. Psalm 26, 28, one another commands. Love one another, encourage one another, fellowship with one another, show hospitality to one another, reprove one another when necessary. It just goes on, care for one another, pray for one another, minister to one another. Much of corporate worship is not only about lifting up Jesus, but it is about building up each other. And guess what? If you are not present, you can't build up anybody. So basically, the only one another you can do by being absent is to pray for one another, but the other 26 you're in disobedience to. Or, or you can come together and we can practice those things with each other. And folks, that's not necessarily a premeditated, okay, what can I, what can I do to, to build up uh, Brock Hagley? Maybe I would be conscious of that. Especially if I knew in some way, some struggle he's going through. But it's just being a friend, being open, welcoming. Welcoming one another is another one of them. It's by just loving and listening to each other. Listen to one another is not one of the one another's mentioned in the Bible. But I'm going to tell you, it ought to be. That's a joke, by the way. You can laugh. It's okay. I'm not suggesting God forgot something. But listening to one another is one of the ways that we prefer one another, which is in the Bible. So New Testament worship is not just about this. It's about this. You've got to be present to do that. Number five, <clears throat> we'll wind it up with this. Corporate worship, worship together, is meant to be an anticipation of the heavenly gathering of God's people. What we do here, as imperfect as it is, as sometimes as clumsy as it is, and you know, the preacher can, can say things, he can misquote a verse. Sometimes we don't get started right on a song. Sometimes we, we just, you know, kind of make a mess of all of the things that we want to have down and do just right. But understand, as small, as clumsy, as forgettable as our worship services may be, this is meant to be a sweet foretaste 
of the heavenly worship that we will one day experience for ages to come. I wish I had understood that when I was younger. Back when I was more stupid than I am now. Back when I used to measure worship by how it made me feel. By how many people were there. By how good the band was. How good the offering was. All those are important things and we want to do them well. But folks, let me say to you that that's not the heart of worship. Those are things that are expressions outwardly, but can only, God only knows whether they're truly from the heart of any of us. Remember, we could all be Pharisees here this morning, here just for the appearance sake and nothing more. I don't believe that about you, and I don't believe that about me. But this, again, as imperfect as it is, is in anticipation. It is a foretaste of what will one day blow you away in worship. The grand scenes of worship in the book of Revelation, and let me kind of draw that together with this as to why this is important, why this corporate gathering is a foretaste, why it's an anticipation of what is to come. Those scenes in Revelation, understand, are both present and future. John saw what was going to be. <clears throat> but John also saw what already is. I'm so blessed. This past Wednesday afternoon with Brenda and Chris, their son, and Jamie, the medical personnel waiting on the coroner to arrive. Brother Jerry's earth suit still in the bedroom waiting to be picked up and taken to the funeral home. Ms. Brenda said, you know, uh, because of the service of the first Sunday of the year, uh, Brother, Brother Jerry had started afresh reading through the Bible. Well, he got barely two weeks into it. And now he's getting the story firsthand. How cool is that? How cool is that? We continue to read and study and imagine, try to understand. For Brother Jerry, it's all, oh, I see. It is the same for Brother Earl. It's the same for your loved ones and your friends, your acquaintances, your family that have gone to be with the Lord. For them, all their faith has become sight. For them, they are getting the teaching and seeing it all firsthand and foremost. And they are gathered today in worship of our King. And so when we come here, we're anticipating that. And this is a foretaste of that. But let me say this, in a way that you and I can't fully grasp and understand, you've heard me say it before. We, the church militant, I don't mean to say that 
that we're supposed to be fussing and feuding. That's not militant in that way. We who are still in the fight in this world, we who are still in spiritual warfare, seeking to advance the cause of Christ in a sinful, lost world, we, the church militant, when we gather like this for worship on Sundays, in some mystical way, we are also at the same time already joining in in presence with the church triumphant. Oh, I can't see those angels that, that the writer of the Hebrews talked about in festal, joyful gathering. I can't see all the church of the Old Testament and New Testament, the church of the firstborn. I can't hear the sounds of trumpets and of, of the Lord's worshipers and the Lord's choir. I can see and I can imagine and I can hear all that by faith. But literally by faith also God counts us present there for we are already in Christ. We are already His eternally. And so we the militant joined the church triumphant because they no longer have a battle to fight. They have, have fought their spiritual battle. And we, we join the triumphant church in that worship. And that's why every single time a Lord's Day rolls around, I want to be among God's people, God's true people, worshiping Jesus focused on him, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's only through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus that we have any hope of heaven. I want to be somewhere where I don't have to navigate some intricate details of ritual, but where I can come into God's presence with God's people, and I can look around me and see sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. And alongside them, I can join my voice with theirs. I can give my offerings. I can give my time. I can give my abilities. And I can worship God in all of life worship and also life together worship, knowing that God is receiving that and it is an acceptable offering unto him. Well, let me leave you with this key truth. I hope you'll remember it. We are all 24, 365 worshipers. What in the world does that mean? We are all 24, 365 worshipers. We are all 24 hours a day. 365 days out of the year, worshipers. Now, of whom and of what, you have to make the choice. Everybody worships something. Even unbelievers, even hateful Christ rejectors, even the demon-possessed are worshipers. Everyone worships 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Who or what are you devoting yourself to? I hope and pray 
It is to the Lord Jesus Christ, his gospel, his truth, presented to us, given to us in this book. Father, we thank you. We praise you for the privilege of worship. Cause us to be more mindful every day how that every waking moment, and Father, even our sleeping moments, can be focused on you. I pray that you would help us to live lives that are acceptable worship at all days, all times. And I pray that we'll be faithful worshipers together, that we will encourage one another, pray for one another, that we would love one another, that we would grow in grace every day. I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.